everyone's come back after uh, afternoon tea. I find this is often a hard time to focus and stuff, but we have prayed, and I am glad that you're uh, here. Now, the late, great, so if you've got your outline, it'd be really good to have that open as we go through, uh, we spend some time in 1 Peter and a few other places as well. Now, the late, great Stephen Hawking once said, work gives you meaning and purpose and life is empty without it. So how do you react to this quote? Now, as we've seen this morning, work can indeed give us meaning and purpose, but what are the problems with this view? Open it up for some questions, reflections, yeah. Yeah, people who can't work. So what does that mean? What, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, if, um, yep. I mean, if you got sick or whatever and you can't work, yep, what happens? Any other reflections, thoughts? Work is empty, your life is empty without work. Any other? Retirement, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're finished, you, re- you retire or you lose your job, you're unemployed. You know, what happens then? Is life empty then all of a sudden? So... Um, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, sa- same kind of thing. Yeah, so it's kind of the, it's sort of a theme here, isn't it? When you're actually no longer working for good reasons, retirement, um, sickness, or uh, not good as in that you want it desirable, but good as in it's a legitimate reason, uh, or if you're having kids, etc., is life therefore empty? Well, what happens if things just don't go to plan? Like work's frustrating, like it's you know bureaucracy obstruction, or it's so toxic that it's kind of fruitless. You just can't kind of do anything. Is life really? Is that really? Going to be, is, life, is that going to make life work fulfilling, etc.? Well, what about just trying to find, you know, things that aren't work? Can I find purpose and meaning in things that aren't work? Uh, is work the only place that I can find something purposeful and meaningful? So I think Stephen Hawking's quote is fascinating, but it's the second part, as we've already identified, that particularly intrigues me. Life is empty without it. Is life empty without work? Because as we've said, there will be times and seasons in our lives when we won't be working. We get sick, we retire, or we're made unemployed, or we take a career break. So is life meaningful, meaningless, purposeless? And perhaps this was the reason that during the, the global financial crisis in 2008, that a number of, I heard a number of stories of senior business people who took their lives. They, I, heard one very senior, one, I heard of one very senior businessman near the top of a global firm, lost his job, couldn't handle it, and he killed himself. Perhaps it was because life was empty. He felt life was empty without his work. Perhaps he couldn't handle the shame of being a failure, of being unemployed. And so he ended his life. But the Christian faith, I think, offers something incredibly powerful to respond to these ideas. It offers one thing to help respond to failure, weakness and disappointment. Now, I meet with workers all the time in the city, and I count this as, what I'm about to say is, I think the number one reason for disappointment, frustration, and dissatisfaction. I think it's the most significant issue facing workers in modern Melbourne today. And it's this one thing that once appreciated and understood, it will actually transform your life and witness in the workplace. It will revolutionise your Christian life. So what is it? What is this one thing? Well, it's not a technique, it's not a tract, it's not special knowledge. It's, an- it's the answer to possibly one of the most important questions that you'll ever answer. Who are you? I think we face an identity crisis, a crisis of who I am at work. 
Now, when you go to a party or a function and you meet somebody new, what's generally the first question that gets asked in a conversation? It's, so what do you do? Yeah, so it's interesting that we respond to a question of activity with an answer of identity. So when someone says, what do you do? You don't, well, say, you know, well, I fill out forms, write reports, and occasionally use a calculator, and say, well, you say, I'm a banker. You don't say, you know, well, I chase people and then send threatening emails. You say, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> so we... There's another one coming, Adam. It's okay. <laughs> so in our world, we often tie the question of who we are, our identity, with what we do. So what are you? What, so what, what are you? Well, I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm an accountant. I'm just a receptionist. I'm just stay-at-home mum. So we, are, we so often tie our identity to what we do, which means if I have a more prestigious job or earn more money, then we're really somebody. Then we'll be really valuable. Then we'll be contributing. To, then we'll be meaningful. That's why being at the bottom is so unprestigious and many aspire to go to the top. Now, a classic example of this is in one of my all-time favourite films, Legally Blonde. Now, this... <laughs> this this film, this film exposes how we often draw the wrong... Why are you laughing? I mean, it's a, this, is, this, is, this is a social commentary. Um, now, the film, the film exposes the, the, how we often draw the wrong conclusions from external appearances. But a subtle f message of the film, like our society, is that you are only a worthwhile person if you achieve great things. Now, without going into too much of the detail, the film has been out for a while. This is a spoiler alert. But um, in the film... <laughs> So Reese Witherspoon's character, Elle Woods, ends up graduating from Harvard Law School as the class speaker and as a job offer to one of Boston's most prestigious law, law firms. Yet her ex-boyfriend Warner, who Elle calls a total bonehead, graduates from Harvard without honours, without a girlfriend and without any job offers. So the subtle message of the film is that you're a worthwhile person if you achieve academic, relational and business success. Graham Hooper, in his book, Undivided, shares a story of how at a work function, he met a, a former senior executive of a large company uh, who had recently retired. And he introduced himself with the word, says, hello, I'm Bill, I used to be somebody. But now he's just a retiree, rather than the head of a large company. Author and speaker Pauline Nguyen once wrote, do you know what my definition of career is? My career is who I am and who I want to become. I'm constantly working in and on my career. It is who I am and who I want to become. It's common in our world, isn't it? We want to see our self-esteem, our self-worth, our value in what we do. I am what I do. In fact, according to Derek Thompson, who writes for The Atlantic, this idea can be effectively become a religion. Work functions in place of God as our primary source of identity and purpose. He argues that this is particularly the case for the tertiary-educated peop uh, tertiary people generally like us, and he calls it workism, where work morphs into a kind of religion promising identity, transcendence, and community. Call it workism. Workism is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose, and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. So work, therefore, becomes integral to my life's identity. I am my career. I don't just work as a lawyer. I am a lawyer. 
I am a doctor. But can our career sustain such a weight? Do we really define ourselves by what I do? Or will it crush us? World-famous basketball player Michael Jordan claimed that his self-esteem was tied directly to the game. Without it, he felt adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? And in the years since he retired, he's been trying to find an identity away from basketball. Jordan stares into the mirror, wondering where to turn, and he ponders, how can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me? He ponders, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? His self-esteem and his identity were tied to his work. His work ended, and he's not sure who he is. Is he anyone? One of the world's greatest basketball players doesn't know who he is. But the life of the Christian is radically different. Rather than wanting to be somebody, we already are somebody. The Christian's identity is found in Christ. And this theme is found throughout the Scriptures, but particularly consider the exhortation that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and following. If you've got that in your Bibles that Rob just read to us now. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and following. We'll be spending a bit of time in verses 9 to 11 and 12 here. Christians are what? What does it say? A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. This identity is corporate. We are as a body in Christ, yet it's also individual, as Peter goes on to explain in the next chapter or so, to use individualistic examples to to explain the implications of this. Which means this identity, who you are, is regardless of your circumstances or performance. It comes from the new birth into a living hope which Peter describes earlier in 1 Peter 1.3. And the process of rebirth comes through the redemption that is in Jesus and His resurrection from the dead. And this brings a new, clean, fresh identity in Christ as a part of the people of God. So this, is, this one thing is now who we are. So we might have seen this morning, we looked at creation, rede- um, fall, and eschatology of the future, but we didn't really think much about redemption. What does the work of Christ mean to my work? Well, that's what we're looking at here, today. Who we are at work through the work of Christ. And then Peter goes on in verse 11 if it was of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. And so Peter addresses the believers here as aliens and strangers. Now, according to one commentator, an alien implies a clear distance in relation to society, a distance from its values, uh, from its institutions and politics. So becoming a Christian creates distance from society. So as an alien and a stranger, essentially you're different. Now when I was nine years old, I moved to the UK with my family to, to live there for three years. And I remember going to primary school there one day and my friends uh, all started calling me an alien. Uh, I denied it, I didn't want to be an alien, I wanted to be like them. But it was true. I was different. I was an Australian living in England. My identity of of my my difference was rooted in my identity of being Australian. Now, there were a few times where this was helpful, particularly during successful Ashes campaigns, but I was still different. And this is how Christian believers are. We see ourselves in our new identity in Christ before we see ourselves in our vocation. And this impacts, impacts our self-esteem 
and job satisfaction. Will you be satisfied with yourself if you only reach middle management? Or you never work for a top-tier firm? Or you keep missing out on promotions that you feel you deserve? Or you never win employee of the year? Or you never get even a full-time job? Appreciating our identity in Christ means that whether you're in a grad program, at senior management, you work at a top-tier firm, you work for government, you work for not-for-profit, you're at home, you're retired, you're part of a chosen people, a royal priesthood, someone belonging to God, dearly loved. You still have meaning, significance and value. You are somebody. I heard the story of a man in Pakistan who, when asked who he was, he would respond with, I am a Christian. For him, being a Christian was foremost to who he was. His primary identity, he saw himself as being a Christian before anything else. And this actually is liberating, because unlike Pauline Nguyen, who we don't need to be frantically trying to create the ultimate career or identity for ourselves to become significant or important. I think there's a certain restlessness in our world, seeking to change jobs, a new career to find significance and satisfaction. But we already have infinite significance and importance in Christ. And there's nothing wrong with achievement or success, but if you think you're going to define yourself through them, you're deluding yourself. Viewing ourselves as our work will fail us and ultimately crush us, as it has done Michael Jordan. So Christians, we are different. We are different at the level of who we are. And we're valuable and important because of who we are in Christ, an alien and a stranger belonging to God. Now we are different. And once we appreciate and internalize this concept, this one thing, it will transform our lives. Now I just want to try something. This is a bit of an experiment. I want to try something a little bit different. And you've never tried this before. Um, I want us all to shut our eyes. Now, some of you are already doing that, so that's okay. Um, <laughs> but now, I'd really like to do it. Shut your eyes with intentionality, perhaps. Uh, this, is a, this is the perfect time. I just want to shut your eyes and just kind of clear your mind and look inside. It's kind of, this is a kind of a, a version of mindfulness in some sense. But, but I want you to shut your eyes and look deeply to who you are. So shut your eyes and look inside. Think about yourself. Think about your work. What, what drives you? Why do you work? What motivates you? Maybe think about your successes. What drives your success? Are you trying to prove yourself? To whom? What are your concerns? Your insecurities? Look deep. Look deep. What worries you? What things keep you up at night? What are the things that you fear? Is it fear of rejection? Fear of not being a success? Not being the best, not being respected, being accepted by a colleague. What happens if you fail? Who are you then? If you make a mistake, what's at stake? You might lose a contract, a job, injure a patient, self-doubt. Bring all these insecurities up. Reflect on what drives your fears and insecurities at work or your lack of work. Insecurity is about returning to the workforce. What kind of job might you get? Will people look at you differently if you're not at the top? You're doing well? You go bankrupt. You stop working for a season, you're just a mum. If everything goes wrong, 
and you lose everything, who are you? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Remember, this is new life. The old has gone. It's okay to fail because you are forgiven in Christ. This is the heart of redemption, the message of the cross. So you can open your eyes now. And I mean everyone. Everyone can open their eyes. I'd appreciate Yeah. So remember that our identity in Christ enables us to be grace-filled disciples of Christ. We can live as the free because we are free. We can live as the free because we are free in Christ. I hope that was a helpful experience. I don't know how you feel about that, reflecting on yourself. Sometimes it can be a difficult experience, but I think it also can be, it's good to confront our weaknesses and insecurities and know that in Christ we are valuable, important and significant. Now as we continue our reflection on this, I think I mentioned a book this morning, William Taylor's book on revolutionary work. work. Uh, And I think as I was reflecting on his work, I think he describes something in our relationship with Christ, which I think actually undermines, to an extent, what we've just done, what we've just thought about in terms of our relationship with Him through the redemption. Uh, he actually undermines a little bit of a free element of God's grace, because he encourages us to think about Jesus, the relationship with Jesus, as our new boss. He draws from passages like Ephesians 6, 8, which says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So he goes on to say, whatever the Sovereign Lord has placed us, whether it be we work for the Suffolk Council, the Department of Works and Pensions, or the Royal Bank of Scotland, or even for ourselves, we now must grasp that we have a higher command. We work under the rule of King Jesus. Of course, it's the repeated teaching of the New Testament that we, those in Christ is the one that they ultimately work for, Jesus. However, I'm not sure that the image of being the new boss is the one that best captures our relationship with Christ. If Jesus is my new boss, it kind of makes me wonder if I'm going to get assessed. Will there be an end-of-year performance review? Uh, you know, uh, how many areas of improvement, you know, growth areas, etc. will I have? But rather, as we've just reflected, you're accepted now as my child because you're in me and I'm transforming you to be more like me. So, in Ephesians, which is Taylor's talked about, he's, there's a context of which... Paul talks about us being the light of the world. We are in Christ and live as children of the light. And so I think it remains the danger of emphasising Jesus as simply our new boss. I think this potentially undermines the grace of God by reinforcing the idea that we are, are who we are through our obedience and not through the work of Christ. And so recognising our identity in Christ is more wide-reaching, pervasive, motivational and freeing than just simply acknowledging Jesus as my new boss. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to spend so much time reflecting on our identity and why this is important is because how you see yourself will impact how you live. 
Now, Kate Middleton received etiquette lessons before becoming Princess Catherine because being royalty changes the way you sit, stand, eat meals and get out of a car. Although perhaps Meghan Markle is challenging this um, at the moment. But how you see yourself impacts how you live. Identifying as royalty changes the way you live. So, for example, royalty, apparently you're never supposed to use a fork as a scoop and you never hold your glass out for a refill. It's just in case you're thinking of changing. But if you say, I mean, sorry, this is, uh, I think, add another joke here, another lawyer opportunity. Um, so say you work as a lawyer, okay? If you promise that, how will you live, for example? How will you live? Like, you know, if you think, say, I'm a lawyer first, you know, opportunistic, overcharging, arrogant, and drive a BMW 5 Series. Like, is, that, is that what it's like? Or as a Christian first, how would a Christian lawyer live? A Christian accountant? Christian engineer, a Christian doctor, a Christian nurse. If you look in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, which is the next verse, which um, just following on from what Rob says, it says we live differently. We live as the royalty we are. Remember verse 9, we are a holy royal priesthood. And the central to this life of holy difference is verse 11, abstain from sinful desires. This contributes to the holy life in Christ, such that Peter exhorts believers in verse 12 to live such good lives among the pagans. Now, living like this will mark us as different, won't it? Like aliens and strangers. But we can handle difference because of our identity. We're secure in identity in Christ. Who you are, chosen, loved and belonging to God, regardless of what we do or don't do at work. If we are insecure in our identity, then we can't withstand difference. But being secure in our identity in Christ by being born again gives Peter the ability to withstand the Christians Peter writes to, the ability to withstand persecution and opposition. And this new life in Christ means abstaining from sinful desires. Now, these sinful desires is where we see humanity kind of for what it really is, without the inhibitions of social respectability. And the particular emphasis that Peter has here in 1 Peter is um, sinful desires which are self-seeking, lustful, uh, and the thought of their satisfaction brings carnal pleasure. And so they certainly contains sexual overtones. Not, not exclusively so, but that's sort of the sense of which he has here. It sort of means no responsibility, no rules, no, sex, drugs, alcohol. Perhaps in many ways it's just the life of the backpacker. Or perhaps it's the life of our co-workers at times. I'm sure that many of our colleagues live outwardly respectable lives, but when I think you dig a little bit, sometimes the respectability is just a veneer. Underneath we see humanity for what it really is, slavery to sinful desires. I knew someone who was travelling on a work trip who was criticised for not joining his colleagues at a strip club after work. And as a young office worker, once I was uh, shocked when I saw one of my married senior managers walk into an interview function with one of the female team leaders. I remarked to someone in my team, so, oh, why have they arrived together? And my colleague sort of responded to my naivety and says, oh, it's because they're having an affair. I was shocked. But I shouldn't have been, because in fact, a recent survey found nearly a third of respondents admitted to having an affair with someone, co-worker, where one person was married to somebody else at the time. One respondent said, I worked for two Fortune 500 companies for, for years, flying all over the country for meetings and events. It was almost a common practice with many of the men in highly responsible leadership roles to be having side affairs with people they either met on the road or office people they met up with while travelling. Some affairs lasted a short time, others went on for years. Strip clubs, office affairs, sexual immorality. It's a clear example of the sinful passions which Peter specifically warns against here. 
But sexual temptation isn't the only sinful desire that we're to abstain from, that Peter encourages here to establish from. Of course, one of the simplest and clearest desires is to abstain from filthy language, from swearing. In fact, colleagues of mine noticed that I didn't swear around them. In fact, they needed to then apolog- they felt they needed the, to apologise before uttering an expletive. So a typical conversation would go like this, oh, this guy was such a, sorry Robert, blah, 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 <laughs> you know, expletive, expletive. So, but purity in language, it's kind of simple and a distinctive way of standing out in the office. But is that it? Not swearing and not sleeping around. That's the extent of our new birth, of our new identity in Christ. In fact, I used to knew a friend once who said to me that that was what he saw. He said that the only difference he saw of Christians compared to the world was that they didn't swear and sleep together before marriage. That was the extent of Christian living. And I thought that was pretty disappointing. Something's, something is profoundly wrong <laughs> if that's the case. Because the new life in Christ is far more extensive and far more penetrating than just not swearing or sleeping around. I'm going to flip in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Go to flip across to Colossians chapter 3. <coughs> um, we're looking at verses 1 to 17 in particular, but Colossians chapter 3. And the logic of Colossians 3 is exactly the same as in 1 Peter 2. Identity, who you are, leads to ethical action. So the Colossians 3 in, in verses 1 and 3, their identity and status is raised with Christ, your life is hidden with Christ, our identity is caught up with Christ, which means that the ethical imperatives logically follow. Because of who you are in Christ, you live like that. And in this vision of the heavenly life, things like sexual passions and swearing, they, they do feature but the list is far more comprehensive. We could spend all afternoon here just thinking about the ways in which each of these virtues or vices can be demonstrated or removed in the workplace. How can we be truthful at work? Put aside anger, rage and malice. How can we be genuinely compassionate and kind to our workmates in the, co- in the workplace? But I did want to touch on just one virtue in particular, which my colleague Andrew Laird highlighted at our recent Life at Work conference. He highlighted the distinctiveness of patience in the early church. See there at the end of a series of wonderful virtues in verse 12 there, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Because patience was also a hallmark of the very first Christians. In his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, Alan Crider explores the historical data around what the early church was like and why it grew. There were numerous factors, but Crider focuses on a neglected one, patience. Crider makes the case that patience was a distinctive characteristic of the early church. A church under threat, on the edges of society, acted with patience, especially towards those who opposed them, and it got noticed. The early Christian author Tertullian explained it like this. He said, patience attracts the heathen, recommends the slave to his master, it adorns a woman, perfects a man, it is loved in a child, praised in a youth, esteemed in the age, in both man and woman, at every age of life, it is exceedingly attractive. Patience is not inaction, but it recognises that God is in control and that we have a living hope. And patience is also related to gentleness, which again, is, I think, is the forgotten fruit of the Spirit. Uh, it's hard to be gentle and impatient at the same time. So consider Proverbs twenty-five, fifteen, which says, 
Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. The imagery, imagery is striking, isn't it? The hardest part of the body, the bone, is broken by the softest, gentle, patient tongue. Now, we, we don't do these things. We don't live like this because of their techniques to win people to Christ. We do it because this is who we are an alien and stranger living this new birth in Christ. Living a good life in Christ as strangers and aliens means a deep, deep transformation of everything we do and think. We display Christ to the world through our conduct, not through our rank or role or coffee mug. Now, it's certainly tough to be different. There are many pressures to conform and Peter describes these passions as warring passions against us, yet resting on our firm identity in Christ as aliens and strangers, Christian believers are to live differently among unbelievers. Now, if you know you're different, you'll be less afraid of being different. You can take criticism or even financial penalty. Now, as we, we finish up now, may I, I just want to, again, try something, a little, another little radical kind of idea I'm just going to ask you to get your phones out. If you have your phones with you, just get them out. Some of you just flip to a, a calendar if you've already got them in front of you. Um, but I'd like to just set, to set a little reminder. Get your calendar. Choose a time on Monday morning. Whatever time works for you. Say 10 a.m. If you, for a uni student, maybe 11.55 uh, when you get up. Um, or whatever, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, Put a little calendar reminder sometime on Monday morning. Just set it. It can be at a time which is convenient for you, but perhaps a time when you're not expecting it. But just write with the title, Who are you? Question mark. Who are you? And then write, God's special possession. Just a little reminder, sort of pop-up, to remind you so that whatever your type of work you're doing, if you're in an office, you're at home, you're with a screaming baby, you're teaching in a class, you're with a client, you're in a meeting, you're on a plane, you're in a hospital that it will remind you who you are. You could add whatever else will help you to, be, to remind you of that time, but maybe a reminder that, you know, we're born again. We're in Christ. We're holy aliens. We're different. I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to be afraid of failure. I don't need to conform to all the pressures around me. I'm not valuable and accepted because of the things I do. I live who I am. A life abstaining from sinful desires, a life that means that I know who I am in Christ. I will be patient. I am dearly loved. I am somebody. I belong to God wherever I am. And as Colossians 3.17 says, whatever we do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your mighty work on the cross that gives us a new identity that won't crush us. It gives us a new future and a new life and a new fresh, clean identity in Christ as your child, holy and dearly loved. Father, in our work and wherever we are, we ask that you help us to remind us of this so that we can live free as your child distinctively in a world that uh, is so critical of uh, those who don't follow them. So, Father, please give us strength by your Spirit to live and work to you and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.